Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Continuing on in our series on women in scripture, we'll take a look at the remaining chapters in the book of Esther, starting with chapter 7. When we left last time, Haman's pride had just been dealt a terrible blow because the king finally acknowledged Mordecai saving his life. And he did it by having Haman lead Mordecai around on a horse, dressed in royal robes, while announcing to everyone that this is what the king did to people he wanted to honor. Yes, he did. And it was so funny. It was. Who said God doesn't have a sense of humor? Not me. He obviously does. And as Haman's in the midst of telling his family what's just happened, the king's eunuchs show up to take him to the second banquet that Esther has prepared. Queen Esther is about to have her coming out. Everyone knew Mordecai was Jewish. Esther had been queen for five years now, and the text says that her cousin Mordecai went to the gate daily to check on her. But in all of that time, no one made the connection Esther was Jewish. That's really weird. It is weird. But the only way that could have happened is if Esther had totally blended in with the pagan Persian culture. We know that at least she broke Mosaic law by sleeping with an uncircumcised pagan that wasn't her husband. Right. And because of that, there's a lot of scholars who criticize her for not being more like Daniel and being forthright about her religion right from the beginning. Or not being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were willing to die rather than break God's law. Despite the fact that she was a young Jewish girl who was conscripted into the pagan king's harem. Daniel and the other three were young when they were taken too. Rose, this is the problem we've talked about before, of using people in these familiar Bible stories as examples of how we should be. Whether it's Abraham or David or Daniel or Esther, all of these people were flawed significantly. Mm -hmm. They were all sinful people who did sinful things. They all needed a savior just like you and I do. And God uses sinful people to work out his plans. We shouldn't be striving to be like them, though. We should cooperate with the Holy Spirit to try to become more like Jesus. Exactly. And regardless of the good any of the people you mentioned did, including Esther, or how things ended up, they're still sinful people and responsible for their sin. And Esther's situation and her moral ambiguity leave her eventually faced with having to reveal her identity at the risk of her life. Christians have faced this problem since Jesus' time, and we may be faced with it here in our own country someday. We need to be ready. And maybe not that far in the future. Maybe not with the way things are going. I know. And that's just one more reason we should be reading and studying our Bibles. Because as we do, we become more and more familiar with God's character. That way, when persecution or other hard times come, we have no doubts about God's goodness, his faithfulness, and how much he loves his people. But getting back to Queen Esther, she's already made the decision that it's time to grow up, be obedient, face the consequences, and now the results of that decision are about to come to fruition. Yep. Esther has put on her big girl pants. Yes, she has. And like we said, the eunuchs have shown up. They escort Haman to the second banquet. So they're all drinking wine after the meal. And again, the king asks Esther the same two questions he asked the day before. What is your wish? And what's your request? And this time she tells him. She asks for her life and then she asks for the life of her people. In Esther 7.4, Esther says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. 
You know, Rose, when I first read this, I didn't catch the fact that Esther points out to the king that the reason she wouldn't have said anything, despite their affliction if they'd just been sold as slaves, was to point out to him that this whole people group being slaughtered would be a loss to the king. She's a smart woman. She is a smart woman. She knew what she was doing. When the king asks her who would dare do this, she chooses her words wisely. In Esther 7, 6, she says, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified. She uses the words foe and enemy for Haman, probably meaning not just a foe and enemy of her people, but also in reality, an enemy of the king too. And Xerxes is really angry. He is angry. He's so angry that Haman can see by the look on his face that he's doomed. And when the king leaves the room, Haman stays behind to beg and plead for his life from Queen Esther. He must have been under the assumption that all women are weak and soft-hearted. He obviously didn't know us. (laughs) Obviously not. Well, things only get worse for Haman, don't they? They do. The king walks in to find him falling on the couch where Esther is sitting while he's doing his pleading and his begging. And that doesn't sit well with the king either. No. Xerxes then accuses him of assaulting the queen in his presence. That is his final downfall. At this point, the eunuchs come and cover Haman's face. This was symbolic so that the person could never look on the face of the king again. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, speaks up and tells the king that Haman had a 75-foot gallows built at his house to have Mordecai hung on. And in explaining that, he also mentions that Mordecai was the one who saved the king. These people are really good at choosing their words. You know, this is another example of how Haman probably wasn't well-liked. Harbona couldn't wait to dime him out. Right, he's definitely reminding the king that, uh, you know, he wants to kill the guy that saved your life. Right, and that Haman's no good. It, it really makes him look like an enemy of the king. Yeah. Like you said, this is a double whammy to Haman, because he really does look like he's an enemy of the king now. He does. And so they hang Haman on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Remember, those gallows were originally his wife Zeresh's idea. Can you imagine how she felt? Uh, yeah, well, she bears the consequences. Right. She not only bears the consequences of her actions, the whole family does. Haman's estate, his house, his belongings, his attendants, his property, everything he owned, as was customary when someone was a convicted felon, was taken. And it was all given to Queen Esther. Haman's family is left with nothing. And later, Haman's ten sons are killed. On the flip side, the king honors Mordecai. He takes the signet ring he had given to Haman, the ring that gave him the right to act basically as a representative of the king, and gives it to Mordecai, placing him in the high position Haman had held for a short time. And Esther puts Mordecai in charge of Haman's estate. Fitting. Fitting indeed. There's still one problem though, Chris. When the Persian king gave an order, it could never be revoked. Not even the king who gave the order himself could revoke it. And the order was still out there that there was going to be a day when the Jews were to be killed. That sounds crazy, but that's how it was. Esther once again goes before the king to make a plea for the life of her and her people. And since he couldn't revoke the first decree, the king gives Mordecai the right to write another decree in the king's name and to write it as he pleased. You know, King Xerxes should have learned to write his own decrees after what happened the first time. But he trusts Mordecai to do it. Maybe it's because he knows he's Esther's cousin, Or maybe this is a king who just doesn't want to do anything for himself. Yeah, maybe it is because he's Esther's cousin that the king trusts him, but he should have been making the decisions for himself. 
Anyway, Esther 8.11 tells us that Mordecai wrote an edict that said, The king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed forces of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And the edict was issued all throughout the land, sparing the Jews and bringing them great joy. You know, the fact that the Persians couldn't revoke their own decrees in a way is like God's righteous decree against sinners that demands our death. God is perfectly holy and perfectly just. He can't just overlook sin. He can't revoke his righteous decree. It must be satisfied. And it is. God solves our problem for us himself. His decree for justice is satisfied by Jesus dying on the cross and suffering the wrath of God in our place. God's counter decree that Jesus would take on the sins of his people saves us. So because he can't revoke the decree that sin deserves punishment, God is both just and he's the justifier, according to Romans 3.36. You know, there are some other parallels in this story, too. The first decree in Esther caused Mordecai to wear, to wear sackcloth and ashes, something we know from other places in the Bible as a sign of mourning. Knowing that God demands justice, we should come before God mourning our sin. This is what Jesus means in the Beatitudes, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, blessed are they that mourn. Right. He's not talking about mourning over the death of a loved one. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to believers, the only people who will be blessed, and about what their attitude before God should be. This is what is called mortifying your sin. And another parallel in this story of Esther is that Mordecai is clothed in royal robes of the king, just like believers are clothed in Jesus the King's robe of righteousness. I love that parallel. I love it. And another one, just as the first decree the king issued left the people weeping and wailing, the second decree brings them joy. This is the difference we feel when we realize the state her sin has left us in and the joy we feel when we're saved. Absolutely. And there's one more. The joy the people of the land felt came before the actual day they could defend themselves. And they knew that they were assured the victory because of the king's second edict. The parallel here is that believers can have joy right now, even though our course is not yet fully run, because our salvation is complete. And we know that King Jesus has already won the victory. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Chris, the book of Esther doesn't end with the second edict being issued. Chapter 9 begins on the day the battle is to happen. Both sides have had time to prepare. The enemy of the Jews were the aggressors and had planned to massacre them. The Jews, as the edict stated they were to do, had made preparations to defend themselves all throughout the provinces. And the Bible says, The tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. They did, and who do you think turned those tables? And the Bible tells us three things that helped. God struck all the people with fear of the Jews. The Jewish people gathered together in their cities and prepared to defend themselves. And the princes, the rulers, and the governors of the provinces helped the Jews. The Bible says the nobles defended the Jews out of fear of Mordecai, who had become very powerful in the kingdom. Under the original edict, they would have been supposed to help wipe out the Jews, but with the second edict, it would have been their own benefit to pick the most pleasing thing to the king. And the Bible says the Jews struck down all of their enemies. They killed 500 men that day in the city of Susa alone, 10 of which were the sons of Haman. 
And you got to wonder why their sons would attack the Jews after what happened to their father. Not too bright. Not too bright. So it was reported to the king what had happened, and he told Queen Esther. And then he asked her, is there anything else you want? And she did. She asked for one more day of killing to be granted in the city of Susa, and that the bodies of the ten sons of Haman be hung on the gallows. These are not the words of a weak-willed, soft-hearted woman. They definitely are not. Haman definitely misjudged her. He did. And the king grants her wishes. They hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons on the gallows as a warning, and 300 more men were killed in Susa on the second day. And in addition to the 800 men in the city, 75,000 of their enemies were killed in the surrounding provinces. But although they were allowed to, according to the edict, the Jews didn't touch any of the spoil. Many commentators believe that the Jewish people did not kill all of the women and children, even though the edict said that they could do that if they wanted, and that this may be one of the reasons they didn't take the plunder, so that the women and children of their enemies would have something to sustain themselves. We're not told any of this for sure, but the Bible does say they killed men, and not taking the spoil would also show that the Jews were only interested in saving their lives. They weren't doing this for any sort of financial gain or wealth, like the first edict had their enemies doing. Queen Esther had specifically asked the king for her life and the life of her people, nothing else. Right, and they were trusting God to sustain them, not the plunder that they could take. Absolutely. Kind of like when they came into the Promised Land. Exactly like it, I think. Right. So to finish today, Rose, we should mention that this event is where the Jewish celebration of Purim comes from. That's right. For most of the provinces, the killing happened on the 13th day of the month, and they feasted on the 14th day of the month. For the city of Susa, though, as we said, they added an extra day of killing to annihilate all of their enemies, so the killing lasted for two days, on the 13th and 14th, and the feasting happened on the 15th day. Mordecai recorded the events and sent letters throughout the kingdom that these two days, the 14th and the 15th days of the month of Adar, should be celebrated annually with feasting and joy, charity, mercy, and generosity, with presents of food to one another and giving gifts to the poor. It was to be a time of remembrance when the Jews got relief from their enemies. They were to explain the holiday to their children so that they might learn to hope in God and give him honor throughout every generation. Both Mordecai and Esther write edicts concerning this. The Bible says that Esther wrote with full authority, making it an official celebration. This was an important distinction about this official celebration because it wasn't a mosaic-originated festival, so they wouldn't call it a holy day. Right. The feast is called Purim, which is the plural form of the word pur, which means to cast lot. The method that Haman had used to determine the day of their destruction for the Jewish people, which ultimately became the day of destruction for all the Jewish enemies. The book of Esther ends with a very short chapter, which is chapter 10, where we're told that King Xerxes imposed a tribute tax throughout the land. Yeah, we're not told what the tax was for, just that he imposed it everywhere, not just locally in Susa. Kind of like now, we don't know what it's for half the time. (laughs) Exactly. Who knows where it's going. We're told that the acts of Xerxes' power and might and Mordecai's greatness and stature in the land are recorded in the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. And the book ends with these words from Esther 10.3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. You know, Rose, that reminds me of Joseph in the book of Genesis, who also rose to second in power. In both of those cases, righteous men are in high places in the government. 
and things are good for the people of the land because these are the type of men who will seek the welfare of the people they're governing. You're absolutely right. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people groan. We could definitely use more government officials working for the welfare of the people. That's what government is supposed to do. Work for the good of the society that they're governing. Not for themselves and not just for the people who vote their way. When we started this book, we mentioned that God was not mentioned anywhere in the book. Not anywhere. But the providence of God is plainly traceable all the way through Esther. Esther gives an unmistakable view of God working in the ordinary and natural course of things to lead to the savings of the Jews. There's not one extraordinary manifestation of God's power in the whole book. There's no particular cause or agent that was miraculous, yet God used everything in the book to fulfill his will of events. Absolutely. And that wraps up the book of Esther and our time for today. Join us next week as we take a look at the book of Ruth. We hope you're enjoying our series on women in scripture so far. If you've liked what you've heard, check out our website, www.proverbs910ministries.com, where you'll find our blogs, get our updated book information, and see the conferences we offer if you're looking for a speaker for your next women's event. We'd love to hear from you. Have a blessed day. 